Welcome, podcast listeners. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. This is the Modern War Institute podcast. Today, we'll be speaking to Eric Maddox, former U.S. Army interrogator and intelligence analyst who helped determine where Saddam Hussein was and significantly contributing to his eventual capture. As always, the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and does not constitute the position of the United States government. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, I'd encourage you to go check out the new MWI website, still at mwi.usma.edu. We've recently upgraded the look and searchability of the website, so it's easier to find the content you're looking for. So check it out. So, Mr. Maddox, thank you for taking the time to come talk to us. I want to start out our conversation here giving a little sort of context about your background and what you ended up doing with your interrogations in Iraq, as well as how you got to that point that you were doing interrogations in Iraq. So if you could provide us a little bit of background about your experience, uh, that would be very helpful, I think, for the rest of the interview. Thanks, Jake, and thanks for having me. Um, my name is Eric Maddox. I enlisted in the Army in 1994. I was an infantryman for the 82nd Airborne Division for three years. Following that, I found out about the military's language program, took the test, qualified for Chinese Mandarin. I, uh, I really re-enlisted because I wanted to be a Chinese Mandarin linguist, and at the time they said, well, you know, you're MOS, you got to be specific. And they said one of those options is as an interrogator. So I spent a year and a half learning Chinese Mandarin. Spent eight weeks going through the basic interrogation course. Uh, but following that, I spent most of my duties were as a Chinese Mandarin linguist. And, you know, 9-11 happened in the United States military. We went to war. By 2003, we had gone to war in Iraq, and the, the military had drawn most of their interrogators, the language-specific. So, for, for instance, when we went to Afghanistan, we focused on our, we used our Farsi and our Pashto uh, linguist interrogators. And we went to Iraq, we used our Arabic uh, interrogators. But several months into that war, we decided we needed more interrogators, and we even started plucking them from areas outside of language, Arabic language. And as a Chinese linguist, I never expected to be going to Iraq, but I received unexpected sudden orders to go to the Baghdad International Airport, and the orders were for JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, and that was the unit responsible for tracking down the most wanted people in the world, specifically everyone on the deck of cards. When you found out that you are going to be working for JSOC in Iraq, what was your reaction, especially given that this is not, you know, the, the job that you ended up doing there was something you were not explicitly trained to do? Well, first of all, I asked what JSOC was because I didn't know what it was. I realized it's an acronym for the Joint Special Operations Command, and I had no idea what their mission was. And when they explained it to me, I kind of question whether or not I should tell them that I'd never actually done an interrogation before. But I also realized, as, as, as an Army guy, you just do what you're asked to do. And you may not know what you're doing, but we'll work through it and we'll try to figure it out. So I, I really did not know how to do interrogations. I'd been through the training several years before, but I figured, well, you know, if they, if they pulled me on this assignment, it's because they needed me. So let's try to figure out how to make this work. Great. So you, you arrive 
you have very little experience with interrogation. You're going out on missions with, with JSOC types. How did you develop your method for conducting interrogations? Because, again, conceivably, you're, you're kind of building it from scratch since you don't have a background in it, correct? That's right. So I, when I get to Baghdad, I'm with this team of JSOC interrogators. But three days into my time in Baghdad, they sent me to Tikrit. And they essentially said, listen, it's, it's Saddam's hometown, but it's a real small town. We've cleared it out of bad guys. There's, there's nobody really significant there. But they want an interrogator. And, you know, we're busy, Eric, doing real missions. Just go up there and do whatever they ask. So not only was I a new interrogator, but now I'm separated from the experienced interrogators. And I began using the training that I had received from the Army's interrogation course on these prisoners in Tikrit. And, and it was really quickly that I realized it just don't work. And, and that's kind of taboo to say, you know, the training the Army teaches doesn't work. But the Army taught us that we would be interrogating prisoners from a foreign military's, uh, foreign enemy's military. They'd have uniforms and they'd come off the battlefield. But these were insurgent fighters, and they were in civilian clothes, and there was no smoking gun. There was really no evidence. And it took me a couple of weeks of, you know, 10, 12 hours of interrogating every single day before I realized I'm either a really bad interrogator or these interrogations just don't work. And at that point, I kind of took a step back and said, I don't know how to get these prisoners to talk, but the techniques I was taught don't work. Let me see what I can do. How can I get these prisoners to communicate with me? So when you sat down and conceptualized how to do that, what, what solution did you come to? How did you – what was the final process you decided you would use so, to conduct these interrogations? Sure. So the, the Army's technique was to take away all hope of the prisoner, to, make, to give them the mindset that we know everything and that they are guilty and they're not going to get released and essentially take away all their hope. Well, what I realized is when a prisoner first comes to me and I, I begin the interrogation, they are willing to talk. It's only when I play the zero-sum game and make them try to make them understand that they're never getting released and they have no hope that they shut down. So I thought, let's just see how long I can keep these guys talking. And by doing that, I, I did not accuse them of anything. I didn't tell them, accuse them of being an insurgent member, and I certainly didn't tell them they were going to spend the rest of their life in prison. I simply said, you know, let's let's talk about what got you in here. Tell me about your background. And of course, they said, well, I'm innocent. And I said, well, maybe. Let's figure that out together. And they would start talking. And I mean, they would go hours and hours and hours of talking, which allowed me to get over that first hurdle, which was getting them to at least communicate. So now I had to figure out, okay, what do I do now? I've got this chatterbox of a prisoner. So then what I realized is if I didn't catch them in their lies and didn't reveal when they were lying to me, that I could sit back and let them lie to me, let them fabricate a story. And if I didn't show any indication that I didn't believe them, then I could uh, really pick apart their story in my mind and then I would cut a deal with them. And the key to really getting a prisoner to take out, to step over that edge of, of breaking is you got to really make them think they're close to getting released. And I would tell them, I'd say, if you hadn't lied to me, 
I'll let you walk out that door. And they are so excited and they think you've, you've bought off on all their story. And then you reveal maybe one lie and then you reveal another lie and they're devastated because they realize the deal was they couldn't lie and, and they did and you caught them and they can smell freedom. So then I don't punish them for those lies. I don't scold them. I don't say, well, gotcha. I say, all right, you were that close. Now let's do this together. I know you're involved. You've lied to me, and the only reason a prisoner lies is to hide, you know, nefarious activities. Let's get through this. So then my only chore was to find ways to get prisoners to provide me enough information that I could get them released. And that information comes from actionable intelligence. And I'm talking about taking down really, really bad guys. And that's difficult to do because, you know, some of them are ideologically involved. Some of them are tied in through their family. And that's when the work begins. But that was my biggest chore was to create communication, set up a situation to give them hope, get them right on the edge of that freedom, get them almost to taste that freedom, pull that away by revealing lies to them on a deal that we cut, and then turn around without scolding them and say, all right, now let's get through this. So the method you developed has kind of a, kind of a humanist bent to it, right, where you are actively engaging the person in such a way that they, first of all, want to talk to you, and then second of all, are feel comfortable, even when they've lied to you, that you are not necessarily 100% their enemy all the time. Is that, is that kind of an accurate portrayal of, of what you're describing? So, Jake, I, I think the human side of my technique really hasn't even begun yet. I would say probably the least human side is what I've just described, and that's opening up communication. The human side comes to where this prisoner decides, you know, I lied, and that was the deal. I wasn't supposed to lie, and I did, but I want to go home. And so I tell all interrogators, I said, the key to being a good interrogator is you have to identify the needs of your prisoners. And if you identify and address those needs, they'll address all your needs. Well, the easy answer is every prisoner's need is to go home. But I'm dealing with, uh, I, I work for the United States Army. and We're at war. And typically commanders don't like to let bad guys go home. But what I've also realized is that if I get this prisoner and he really starts cooperating and taking us to bad guys, and then I can prove to that commander, look, look what the support this guy is giving. And then I work to really lay out the network of the, the sort of the human link diagram social network of my prisoners. And I go to the commander and I say, I know every house this guy could go to. I know his aunts and uncles and brothers and every single friend he could have. This guy, we're going to let him go because he helped with four, five, six insurgent captures. And he knows that I can track him down. And basically telling my commander, listen, our job is to get rid of the enemy, not punish former enemy personnel for actions they took. I said, we're, we're not here to convict. We're here to reduce the, the, the insurgency and to win the war by getting rid of the insurgency. And we've got a prisoner here who not only helped us track down bad guys, but he himself has is now in a position to where he's not going to rejoin that insurgency. And if he does, he knows we're going to capture him in about five minutes. 
So now we're dealing with an overpopulation in our military prisons over in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we're actually solving a problem by letting one of these guys go. And it does a double thing in that by when you when you release prisoners, it really terrifies the enemy, the insurgency. They don't know. They're like, wait a second, why did they let him go? Is he helping? Is he is 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 did is the military stupid and they don't know he's a bad guy? And so we release innocent people and then we release guilty people and it really puts the enemy on edge and puts them on their heels. So there's there's a lot of benefits to that. But it starts with, how do I address the needs of this prisoner? How do I get him to go home? What does my commander need for me to let him to go home? And and that's the hu- most human part of being an interrogator. So the method you just described obviously yielded some, some good results in Iraq. What I'd like to talk a little bit about is what you see and you framed it extremely well, I think, is that that needs-based approach to interrogation and dealing with the people you're interrogating. What are the larger implications of that in terms of of war sort of more generally? So less on a one-to-one basis and maybe more on a, uh, a tactical or operational basis. What can that needs analysis and understanding the needs of a populace or an enemy or whatever... Uh, influence the way that we as as a force go about prosecuting wars in the future so that's a that's a great question if if we look at it in just at the interrogator or prisoner it's called empathy right we want to put ourselves in the shoes of of our prisoner and address their needs in order that they'll address all of our needs but if we look at it on the battle space whose needs do we need to address, right? Well, we would need to address the needs of the civilian population that that we're fighting against. I mean, you could say we need to address, we need to look at the needs of the insurgency, but I would say, you know, that apple's almost soured at that point. But the energy of an insurgency, the growth of an insurgency, comes from the local populace. And what are their needs? And and often it seems like when we go into the combat zone, we enter into the war, we're addressing the needs of our security and our safety first. And then maybe we we talk to them about, well, we want to try to build you a, a water well or we want to get you a job. And, and they don't have fresh water. They don't have education. And it comes down to that hope, right? They lose all hope. And... And if we look and go, wait a second, what is the insurgency really doing? The insurgency is addressing the most basic needs of the local populace on that day. Because we could we could look at the the local population in the battlefields and go, guys, just 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 hang in there with us. You know, a year from now, or two years from now, this is this is going to be better. We're we're really we got a long term plan, and they're. They're going to look at us and go, I need today's plan. And that's what that insurgency does, and we have to jump in front of that. So what are the needs of the local population today? Where's that level of protection today? And I would argue, really, the most basic need of the local population is they need to communicate their frustrations and their desires they need to hear that it's heard because it gives them hope that we are listening. But we can't just take that information and you know turn away. 
and and it, and it creates a, a really really difficult challenge because with JSOC, our mission was to track down high value targets. Okay, we're going after the most important bad guys in a in a war zone. Well, the rest of the conventional forces, their primary job was to um, build a, an environment of security, but the reason we wanted to do that is because we wanted to win the hearts and minds. But what happens then when the, the bad guy's driver or facilitator now is the nephew of the sheikh who we're wanting to win a relationship with? And those are conflicting objectives, right? We got to bring on the high value target. Wait a second. We we got to address the needs of our locals, and instead of just sitting around going, well, who's got the higher rank or who's got the higher authority, the JSOC person or the conventional forces, we need to take a look at that. This is going to happen, and what are we going to do to prevent it from happening ahead of time? We have to jump in front of that, or ultimately, we are going to take our needs over the needs of the population, which then removes that empathy and all the work you've done. As it can go to the wayside if 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 we if we don't put priority number one addressing the needs of the individuals we're dealing with, whether it's prisoner, or it's insurgent group, whether it's a local population, and and also as an interrogator, I've got to address the needs of my commander. I can't go to my commander and say, "Hey, I need you to release this bad guy," right? My commander, he's got a answer to his subordinates his superiors but when i go wait a second this this prisoner just took us to a half dozen insurgent members and i show the commander i i know every place they could possibly go now i've addressed his needs i've given him that freedom to release the prisoner so when you talk about addressing needs we got to address everyone's needs or it, it just becomes more difficult to 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 move forward on on your goals well, I think that's a super important thing to highlight in terms of the way that, that we understand current conflicts and potentially future conflicts as well, given that more than potentially any other time in history, we are operating as a force amongst the population uh, and amongst a diverse set of potentially conventional enemy forces to insurgent forces to militia groups, the whole the whole suite of uh, potential enemies that we can potentially face today. Um, you obviously, as an interrogator, were able to understand how important needs were at an individual level. And I feel like we as an army over the course of the last 15 years have, have in some ways understood that, at least conceptually. How effective do you think we have been as an organization over the last uh, 10 or 15 years in actually putting that basic understanding of the needs of the people we are trying to secure? Uh, how well have we done in, in doing that? Well, hmm. I think we've, <clears throat> unfortunately, I think we've been the opposite of effective. Um, if if you look at it 
the the resources that an insurgency, let's say the Taliban in Afghanistan, what they start with, okay? So we invade in late 2001, and the Taliban are immediately kicked out of office. The locals, even the Pashtuns, hate them. Um, Al-Qaeda flees to Pakistan. U.S. forces come in, and pretty much everyone's happy to see us. By not addressing and understanding the needs of the different ethnic groups, uh, we we now the the Taliban is just strong as it's ever been. If we ever do withdraw from Afghanistan, they'll probably take over within ninety days. Um, it'll be a major civil war, which is a bloodbath. We've had to pull out of many of our fire bases and former strongholds of Kunar, so. Well, how did that happen? Well, it didn't happen because we don't have good soldiers. We don't have conviction and we don't have the resources. It happened because we didn't address the needs of the, of the Afghan locals, the Pashtuns. So um, they the, the, the energy and their frustrations went towards the Taliban. And the Taliban began addressing their needs, whether it's basic judicial needs or rule of law, education, or even this one I keep re- I keep going back to, hope. They, keep giving, they, they give them hope. So if you looked at that and said, well, how well did we do? I, I can't look at any area and said that we've been effective. The only thing I could say is I hate to be the naysayer, but we must move. We must learn. We have to. We're going to go to war again, and, and are we going to make the same mistakes? I remember growing up, and Vietnam was the war that I was born. When I was born, it was finishing up, and all I looked and know about Vietnam was what a lot of the mistakes that we made. And I always thought, as a young soldier, we would never make those mistakes. How stupid, man! I can't imagine making those mistakes. And now, you know, I lived. I did three deployments to Afghanistan. And I saw those mistakes being made. So I would say we did, didn't do it well at all. And now we have to be able to look each other, me, me, myself included, in the eye and go, we failed. We made mistakes. How do we improve upon them? And how do we teach our future leaders not to make those same mistakes that we were certain we would not make? So I want to take a, a step back and and talk less about the specifics of, of your method and more about generally your ability to react to situations that you weren't necessarily necessarily prepared for and to take a, a nebulous sort of problem and create a viable solution for it. Can you can you comment about how you went about doing that in the in the context of uh, your Iraq deployment? Sure. So if you look at the Iraq deployment, a the, the couple of the big changes um, that were made were um, my interrogation technique. And when I look at that, you know, it really upsets me that when I was going through the inter- basic interrogation course, I I almost failed because I didn't think they would work then. I didn't think the Army techniques would work. And so the way the Army had it is they would teach you these approaches, right? This is how you get a prisoner to break psychologically. Well, then when you did the actual interrogations for training with a mock prisoner who was just an instructor you they would say okay run the approach you do 10 minutes and then somebody else would ring a bell and 
all the trainees would know, okay, stop doing the approach, get on to the debriefing, and the prisoner automatically breaks. I mean, that should have told us right then, these don't work. Matter of fact, they don't work, and we admit they don't work, so we're going to ring a bell. And and w- when I went and I applied these interrogation techniques, for me, I had to get to the genesis of the problem. What what What's the issue, right? Because I, I can't define the problem and I can't address the problem unless I figure out what is the problem. So if you look at interrogations, right, why would we think these zero-sum game harsh interrogations would work? Where do we get our experience? Well, we have no experience in interrogations. Uh, we, we went from the end of Vietnam uh, through through 9-11 and we had almost zero real-world interrogations. So our experience came through SEER school, right? That's the school where we send our, our special ops and our pilots in case they get captured and and we got some some trained interrogators that said, interrogate these students and make them break well the thing about a seer school environment interrogation there's no benefit for the student to break uh, he fails the course he gets humiliated and he might even lose his job right like there's no benefit to it and so very few of the actual students actually ever break. As a matter of fact, we took credit in saying, wow, they, they withstood the interrogations because they didn't break. Well, it's not a real interrogation. But the 4% of SEER students that did break, they did so because they were just bummed out on being there. They were having marital problems. They were having other life problems. And they basically didn't care that they wanted to quit the school. It's a, but so for them, breaking, uh, they wouldn't have really broke, but they just wanted to get out of there. They wanted to quit the school, and they were weak at heart. So what the what the uh, interrogators um, realized is the the harsher and the more we yell and the more we put this pressure, we could identify and pull that four percent out quicker. So when we went to the real world with having real prisoners and we, we used the same technique, we said, listen, this is how it works in the schoolhouse. The more you yell and the louder you scream, you're going to be able to weed out that 4% because, in general, they're just weak. Well, the reality of it is that as a real prisoner, there are no benefits in a zero-sum game for breaking. So you lose that... Four percent would occur, and which would occur in Sears school. So, what would the mindset was? Well, ratchet it up, juice it up, sensory deprivation, uh, stress techniques, which even takes it into torture. So, when I look at this and I go, okay, that's why the zero sum game techniques were taught. Not because they're effective, it's because they were used in a in an environment such as a schoolhouse. And and that when they were effective, it was deemed so because the type of person that was susceptible to it was going through emotional issues, and if you ratcheted those up, kind of heated those up, then then you would even maybe get four or five, maybe six percent. So that is our experience. Oh, got it. We 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 don't need to learn how to do these better, these enhanced zero sum game interrogation techniques. We need to understand that was a different prisoner. That was a student in a student situation environment. Ah, that doesn't apply here. And once I can do that, then I can go, wait a second. All right, all right. Get your mind away from that. What 
what opens people up. Um, hope. Hope for what? To get released. How do I get these people released? I don't know. I don't even know if I can. I'm a, I'm a freaking staff sergeant, and I'm a MI guy. I'm a military intel guy. I don't know that I have any power. All right, well, how, if, if this commander was going to release this guy, how would he? why would he do it? Well, he'd have to like him, because most of these mili- infantry guys, they don't like these prisoners. How do I get them to like this guy? Well, if he brings a bunch of bad guys, that would help. All right? And if he feels there's no threat, that would help. And if I explain that we have an overpopulated prison and that releasing him would actually solve another issue, that would help. And if I can get my my in, in commander better informed, that would help. I think I can get this guy released. And if I can get this guy released, then I can bring to life this hope. And if that's coming out of me, and I'm convincing my prisoners that I can get you released, they see that in my eyes. And let me tell you something, that hope is a powerful tool. And for me, that's what I used. And that's sort of how I backed my way in to learning how to do interrogations. And and I'm going to take that straight to capturing Saddam. Okay? The biggest challenge I had in tracking down Saddam was getting people to believe that he was into Crete. Well, they were convinced that he was not in Tikrit. I would say, well, where is he? We don't know where he is. We just know he's not in Tikrit. This is his hometown. It's small. And we've been through every single house. And and I had to wait. go, wait a second. Where's this intel coming from? Well, this intel was coming from our military analysts that were in the United States and then predominantly with the CIA. And, and well, they didn't have access to the information that I had access with. So what I would do is I would get my commander seeing and hearing and understanding the information that was coming from my prisoners on a daily basis. And any time he would get intel from the CIA saying, oh, they're not here, that yada, yada, I would say, Where's the, where did that come from? How does he know? Tell me. And I would kind of lay it out to my commander and say, this is where he's getting the intel. This is where I'm getting the intel. Please tell me. You know my information's better. I mean, forget about me. If anybody's getting it from the mouth of the enemy and the other person is getting it from historical information separated from years and distance from the enemy, whose do you think is more accurate? And that was sort of the, the start of, of being able to push forward on this hunt for Saddam into Crete. So I think a lot of what you said is extremely interesting in the sense that you highlighted over the course of developing your technique for doing interrogations and and conducting those interrogations, a propensity for investigating and trying to better understand the the how and the why of the methods you were were taught, an ability and and a propensity to question the validity of some of the information that was given to you or, or the analysts who maybe didn't have as, as good an understanding of the ground-level truth that you did, uh, as well as creating your own solution to problems. What do you think allowed you to do all those things? Is it something particular to your personality or your experience in the Army or in life more generally that, that gave you the ability to question and investigate and create in such a way that yielded the the extremely successful solution that that it did jake that's a great question um i think there's different parts of it 
for one thing, I, I'm I'm left-handed, and I'm convinced I look at the world differently than the majority of the world, which is right-handed. I, I, I can't explain it. I just look at things differently. Um, the other thing is tracking down Saddam was about finding a human, tracking down a person. And uh, I was born, I was adopted, and I was raised my entire life saying I could never know who my biological mother was. And I remember as a kid going, why not? I, I, I bet I can. And when I turned 18, or actually I waited until I was 19, I decided I'm going to track this person down. And it took a lot of work and hunting them down, but I found them. And for me, I never thought I was going to find them. But once you, get that, once you get that taste of finding your your person, then you know it can be done. And I remember when I was in in Iraq and we with the, the team, one of them said, we get the high-value targets that are stupid, and when they make a mistake, we're there to get them. But if they're smart, they won't ever get caught. And that wasn't a bad statement. It's probably factually true, but I thought that I, 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 I've tasted tracking them down. And they do exist. And as long as you believe they exist, you, you triple your probability of finding them. In 2005, I was with the same task force, and we were going after an individual. His name was Abu Taha. And, and we were getting close, I felt, and we went on the raid, and we got him. He was there. Yet all the commanders, uh, the, the other people on the raid, they didn't recognize him because they, they didn't. And I thought it looked exactly like him, but they walked right by him because he would never be there. He didn't exist. And I said, listen, this is a scar right on the forehead. I think it's the one we're looking for. And and, and I don't think it was because I was smart or better. I'm not trying to put anybody down. I was expecting to find him. And it for everyone, in, in whatever your mission or your goal or what your profession is, you have to taste that success and you have to see and believe that it can happen. When you're hunting down high-value targets, uh, you've got to believe you're going to find them. Otherwise, they will turn into a leprechaun. Okay? They don't, they don't exist. You're chasing a pot of gold. And you may pass right over them because your mind says they do not exist. Um, just in terms of creativity and freedom, the bottom line is that the Delta Force commander that I worked for pushed it. And he basically had a mindset that if you're on his team, you had better speak up if there's a better way to do things. Not that even that you have a freedom to speak up if there's a better way. You have a responsibility. And I thought it was amazing and because, and, you know, I'm just the outside interrogator, yet I didn't have to question, what if I should say something? I think we could do it different. Um I knew I had a job. That was my duty. And when you can have a group of individuals that live under that mindset, that you have a responsibility to speak up to make things better, it's a powerful force. And, you know, that commander that I was with in 03, he didn't talk much, very soft-spoken. There isn't a person underneath him that, that wouldn't run through a brick wall for that guy. To this day... I would, and for me, that that's what leadership is, and it and it's that sort of it gave it empowered me so that I could work for him, and instead of him driving and pushing and giving all of his his efforts, 
he was able to inspire so that all those people below gave all their efforts and and that's more powerful than any single individual so for me when it comes to freedom and creativity and innovation all those things that are usually frowned upon in the military uh that's what that commander insisted upon a lot of the things you just talked about i think are in terms of our cadets here at west point and what we sort of want from junior officers is, is kind of an idealized state right we want an open mind we want the ability to attack and solve complex solution or uh, complex problems we want an optimistic outlook and we want them to take responsibility for doing things better if things can be done better what do you feel like, and, and you already talked about it a little bit with the with the Delta commander who you worked for, how do we develop that ability in our cadets and our, our junior officers so that they can, when they go out to the force, instill in, the, in their soldiers that open-mindedness and freedom and innovative uh, environment, how do they develop that while they're here? Well, Jake, that's a great question, and I think it's it's hard to do because at a school environment, we measure um, success or failure. We, we do it in grades or um, certificates, and I think what I, you know, if I put one of the cadets and train them to be an interrogator and put them through the system, they would want their score, and they would want to know, how did I do? Did I pass? Did I succeed? But what I think is important is, I mean, we really need to put our cadets in complete, total failed situations. Goat ropes, right? Just disasters. This prisoner's not breaking. You're not, there's, there's not, don't worry about the steps to success. I need you to go, how do we handle the debacle? This is a failed situation. And think, because then it's not, wait a second, what does the grader, what is my instructor, what's the right steps? You need to stop and go, oh my goodness, this is a disaster. This is, this is a debacle. What should I do? Wait, why? Why should I do that? Well, because that's what they told me to do. Eh, wrong. And, and and I know we all want to do it. We all, in the military, I was a non-commissioned officer. We want to train our subordinates and our new guys to think. But it's hard to do because we set measurements of correct action. And, and we're teaching them what to do. And we got to teach them why to do. Why? Why are you doing this? But I've got to be able to get those cadets and go, listen, you, there's no easy path. There's no correct path. There's no steps. I need you to think. Why are you doing this? Well, because this is what they did when they were here. Wrong. It's going to be different. It's going to be wrong. Think why. Why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I want to create this in the mindset of the prisoner. Why? Because I'm hoping to accomplish this. Okay. Do you see the ramifications? What if he thinks this? Oh, yeah, that could be a problem. Okay. Then, then what else do you want to think? What else? And we can boil it down to why. Why are you doing this? And and we, we need to do it in every situation. I mean, I think I think the best example we can look at is first aid. Okay, so when I joined the military in 94, um, the last resort on a, a bleeding victim uh, casualty was to put on a tourniquet. 
I didn't know why, because they said they would lose the limb. Well, now it's the first thing we do. We slap on the tourniquet, right? Like that in and of itself, it's like the the earth, the world was flat, and now it's round. And and we shouldn't just go, just hey, first thing, slap on the tourniquet. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's back this up. This is a great learning opportunity. Why did we first do it one way? Well, we didn't want to explain. They don't know how to put tourniquets on right for the most 90, blah, 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 right? Whatever it is, is the why. That's the learning. And, and so I just think we need to be careful when we're training the cadets to teach them the what or the how. And they understand the why. Because it's never going to happen like this ever again. It's going to be worse and different. But the why will allow you to, uh, to take this and put it into almost any situation. Yeah, I think I think that's fantastic. I think that's really what we as as an institution should be working towards is getting cadets to understand the the why and a framework for uh, for making their decisions. Well, Eric Maddox, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Uh, I think this has been super uh, super super helpful. Um, and thank you again. Thanks, Jake. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership.